Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, for many, this conversation might be a little unsettling. I'm certainly surprised because it seems marketing teams know far less about effective media, that is both the science and embedding real-world data to inform future campaigns and channel mix, uh, than most of us actually would expect. It's a well-known maxim that marketers spend just 5 to 10% of their time on media, and it perhaps explains why we're about to hear just how much is not known by so many around the basics of media planning and effectiveness. I know it does sound quite counterintuitive, but it's exactly why James Dixon and Claire Fenner at Atomic 212 have penned a new book, How to Do Effective Media. It's a kind of fast dive into media science and the practical ways in which brands and marketers can do media far, far better. Too much blind hope and expectation, uh, the authors say, is put on media by brands to drive business growth without robust data and learnings to know what should be expected from advertising and media strategy. So with James and Claire today is a couple of marketers who are on their unfinished journey into media science and effectiveness, and they're going to give us their views. In How to Do Effective Media, James and Claire have broken the sometimes dizzying array of thinking into eight key themes. We're going to punch through these like a Formula One race. So buckle in and welcome Nicole McInnes, Director of Marketing and Commercial at WW, formerly Weight Watchers, you may have known it, and John Wild, CMO at Online Pet Supplies Pure Play Pet Circle. So to James and Claire first, you've written a book, Madness, I'd say. They're hard and even harder is writing a book on media effectiveness. Um, so well done for the bravery. But give us a quick summary uh, on why you're taking on the impossible and, and why it's needed around media effectiveness. Um, welcome, James and Claire. Thank you, Paul. We certainly don't mean to be unsettling. We see an enormous amount of pressure on marketing teams uh, and often that frantic reactive pressure is counterproductive to effective media. So the book takes a step back and gives marketers a framework, a system, if you like, to compare their current setup against best practices and ultimately improve their media and return on media. We do recognize that many marketers are up to speed on on these good practices. So please consider this book as a free guide from which to tick off current practice, find gaps, and progress towards a holistic system for effective media. Hi, Claire. Hi, Paul. It's great to be here. Um, But we just wanted to quickly touch on the contents of the book, which is really pivoted around this effective media system. And the effective media system is designed to help marketers have a framework that can maximise the effectiveness of their media, working with their agency, and really hold media agencies accountable. Um, There are three fundamental elements to the effective media system. The first being a united team, and we'll touch on that in a bit more detail, a scientific approach, and and measurement and statistical analysis through modelling. So the united team refers to alignment between the CFO and CMO, and also making sure there's rigorous data, um, whether that's using a data analyst or other approaches, but making sure that there's data feeding into those conversations between finance and marketing. The team then have to implement a rigorous scientific approach, which is really applying a consistent testing framework to actually take marketing theory, refine it, and 
apply it to their business. So actually getting to a point where it's not just generalised marketing theory, but they actually have insights that can inform their own approach based on their product and their business. And then finally, in order to actually measure the effectiveness of those tests is statistics and modelling. So making sure there's a really clear framework that's going to give unbiased outcomes for whether the test has delivered the hypotheses that it started with and determining what those insights and learnings are. These three fundamental points are then applied to what we call five media levers. So that could be the objectives for the campaign, the audience, channel mix, reach and frequency and investment, which we're going to touch on in a lot of detail in this conversation. You know, there's a lot of clients that are that are still building their capabilities and understanding in this area. And you see it a lot across your across your portfolio, correct? It's, this is part of why you've you know you've got you picked up the pen. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of varied capabilities in this space, but I think the majority of marketers don't have the tools in place and the understanding of what actually is working in their media mix and what is driving the outcomes for their business. Does it surprise you that it's sort of there's that dearth of understanding? Because, what gee, we've been doing this for a long time. It is surprising, but to be honest, the whole time I've been working in this industry, I haven't seen much different. And I think it's probably comes down to the disconnect between marketing and the rest of the business in a lot of cases that they just don't get challenged in this space in the right way. They don't, there isn't the right perception of marketing as a growth center these days. And I think that's a big gap because they're not being challenged and asked for what marketing can contribute to the business outcomes. They don't have to answer to it in a lot of cases. Well, it's a nice segue, Claire, into the first of the eight themes we're going to race through today. The first one is the team you guys identify as essentially that, that connection between the CMO and the CFO and making sure they're aligned. Talk us through your key points there, and we're going to talk to, to Nicole and John about how they how they see it uh, on the ground in their, in their enterprises. James, CMO and CFO, important first step. Absolutely. So central... Um central to an effective media system is that the CMO and CFO are aligned and we propose that they're supported by a non-biased data analyst. Uh, A lot of the proposition in the book is around the data and analysing the data with with media models. Um, And in doing so, the CMO gets closer to that CFO language of numbers. So where we don't typically see full alignment with the CMO and CFO, we hope that the, the, the book gives a way through to that conversation and unity. Claire, you think it's, it is it is rare too, the, the, that alignment, the connection between the two? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most common request that we see coming from finance to marketing is a request to cut budgets. And I think that's there's some businesses where that doesn't happen, but a lot of our clients are faced with that challenge on a regular basis. Um, there's specific instances where I can think of where, for example, a client that's in financial services has been cutting their budget and it's driven by broader cost-saving initiatives from the broader business and they've just been consistently cutting their budget. They start with the same budget every year, um, but inevitably they always lose budget throughout the year, which ultimately reduces the impact of marketing and the benefit to the business. Nicole, um, is it important and how have you found that in your career? You've, you've, you've had a few gigs and you've been around a little bit uh, and uh, what's your experience in this, in this area um, over your career and now even? Yeah, I've experienced it both ways where... I have worked with CFOs who really don't understand marketing and its impact and have just cut it whenever they had the chance. But I'm lucky enough now to not be in that situation. I'm very much um, have a CFO that 
really understands how marketing does drive revenue and doesn't like he actually doesn't like to cut it it's it's kind of the last resort dream gig by the way there if you, if your cfo doesn't want to cut your budget i know it is it it actually does make it's one pressure i don't have to deal with on a daily basis which is really good because there's a lot of others yes the bigger challenge is actually what claire touched on which is proving the effectiveness of that budget so there is still a lot of misunderstanding in non-marketing executive executives on the the effectiveness of some channels because they don't have that data flowing out of them really simply and that's where things can go a bit wrong with the whole marketing system ROI. What success have you had in trying to convert a uh, recalcitrant or reticent uh, CFO that marketing can deliver growth? Do you have you had some 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 progress there where you've converted? Yeah, absolutely. I I I'm lucky enough to work in, in companies that have invested a lot in software that tracks both digital media and broadcast media. So I've been able to use numbers and data, which is often the language that they speak, to show uh, how all media channels and what role they play in the whole media ecosystem, which has been such luxury. Uh, and I know the other thing, when when I haven't had that software in place, I've done things like A-B tests and turn markets off. Um, I have a control and a, a test market. And then um, the other thing that we used to do quite a lot at eHarmony was do dark weeks just to keep sense checking if you like on the impact of broadcast we might get to that a little bit later because it's a very interesting subject john your your experience with those fabulous people in the finance team um uh, friend or foe i think it's incumbent upon you to make them your friend i mean when it's bad marketing for the financial team is is a is a cost center um and and it's incumbent upon you to prove otherwise and while it's and and i think often i think brand marketers or marketers have been guilty of this they've been Using statements such as engagement or, or, you know, marketing theory or emotional connection, none of these things find themselves on a balance sheet. So, as a, as a marketer, what you need to do is you need to you need to talk, talk their language, as Nicole has mentioned. So, you need to instrument yourself first. So, you need to instrument all your channels, including your non-clickable media. Um, first, first hire I've made in the last three roles has been has been analysts. The other, so, so that to me is really important. You've got to set that up. Second thing is, you and again, the last three roles we bought our own digital media. So you have to hire people with a performance mindset. For example, SQL is a common skill in most of, in most of my performance teams. So these guys are actually able to use and manipulate data as well, if not better, than the financial team. So you make marketing then look and smell very much more like a financial output. And suddenly when, when you come to cutting costs, you're not cutting a cost, you're cutting growth or you're cutting customers or you're cutting revenue. And if you can put it into that context, it really brings the CFO along in terms of supporting marketing. The other piece, which is a, which is the less measurable piece, is the, is the creative and the message, which we all know is bloody important. And 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 for that, I've I've typically um, actually invited CFOs to creative pitches, so they can empathise and understand and buy into the creative message as much as they can to the media efficiency. And I think it's incredibly important because if you can do that, you've got someone then backing in you backing you in your corner. And that means that you're not going to be the first line item that they look to cut, you know, if revenue is not not going according to plan. John, have you ever in your career hit a finance team where they didn't want to hear that you know uh, marketing's got something to offer to the to the to the enterprise? Absolutely. I mean, it's de- and it's death by a thousand cuts. And you got to th- you got to see it from their perspective. Do I cut marketing or do I cut heads? 
what's the more palatable solution for the CFO? Generally, it's going to be marketing. The sort of process or the advice I gave prior still holds. And, it's, and, you, and you've got to work at it. You actually, as a, as a CMO, you've got to make this one of your priorities is really getting CFO, you know, CFO and, and, and more broadly, the financial team's alignment. James and Claire, I mean, obviously, Nicole and John are sort of great pots of hope, really, for, for, for what can happen and what could be and should be. Across your portfolio, is this typical, what we're hearing here from Nicole and John, or is this, this is the learnings that the market needs to hear? In my experience, I would say it's atypical. Maybe 20% of our clients would have this kind of relationship with the finance team and this way of operating, and the majority of them just have that disconnect between the CFO, CMO, finance and marketing. So, Nicole, have you just been lucky then? Uh, I'm only telling you about the good stuff. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) No, no, I've, I've experienced differently. So I have experienced where they just want to cut and they don't understand. But often they're organizations where marketing hasn't got that direct responsibility for revenue. So mm. in those situations, it's a lot harder. Like you you are sort of more of a support function to potentially a sales organisation or uh, to an external retailer. So that's when it becomes a bit trickier to, you know, show the effectiveness of your department because you don't have that direct sales input coming, like looping straight back into the system. Mm. So that's where I sort of, I actually choose roles now where it makes it easier <laughs> to, to show that link because it, it just suits me better. James, Claire, really anyone um, in, in terms of that context that, that Nicole just talked about where you don't have that direct connection or responsibility for revenue, are there still ways you can bring the finance team on, or is it a much harder ask? I think it's a it's a much harder ask. I mean, it, interestingly, this is actually common across Nicole and I just realised is I also look after the supply side, so pricing, ranging, product, etc. And so again, I had accountability. Well, you're a real marketer, John. Yeah, perhaps <laughs> four P's. Well, it's just the four P's, right? So so often we hear it's uh, it's it's promotion and that's it. But um, I, I interrupt. And, and I think I think that's the point, right? I think that is the point, right? That, that it's, it goes well beyond comms or promotion. And I think the marketers that get that, the marketers that, that skill themselves up with the ability to go to actually operate those those areas are the ones that are able to then, I think, really build the whole organisation around the concept that marketing is a growth engine, not a cost centre. Uh, Claire, James, any uh, some thoughts there on, on terms of bridging that gap in a, in a, in a, in a ferociously resistant uh, environment? Is, have you seen anything happen that where it can work? It can work when that language is, is consistent, as John pointed out. And the book goes on to propose, we'll talk about models and such, which are very numerical um, and te- going on with a scientific approach, which um, is about testing, measuring and learning and sharing all that with the finance team. So they're clear that you're, you're adopting a scientific framework uh, that they've bought into, that they can understand the principles of and that you've got the integrity to do that on a rigorous basis. Uh, okay, so the theme two is actually the answer to my question then, which is a part of the answer to the question, which is you, you talk about in the book about a scientific approach. Uh, that's what you just mentioned. Elaborate a little bit more, James, on that. That's because that's point two, right? That's a big, big, uh, important approach that marketers need to take. We're not trying to be too bold there. We're just saying have a hypothesis. When you embark on a marketing campaign, have a hypothesis, test the hypothesis and measure it well, and then take that learning and document it forward for the business. Which doesn't happen a lot, I think, you, you, you sense. No, it happens in pockets. Digital marketing typically is blessed with that, that framework in terms of it has a lot of 
immediate data available, and we do a lot of A-B testing in there, but we don't see that being rolled out through the broadcast media. And then at a holistic level, testing a holistic media plan and seeing if it had a the expected outcome. Claire, often I think you, you think there's, there's sort of little bit part plays that happen um, in, in, in and around the scientific approach and testing, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. James touched on it. So it's really what we see quite commonly and there's a lot of appetite for micro testing or A-B tests within digital channels. So that could be optimising creative, um, looking at different audience performance, but it's really micro comparisons between two dynamics rather than actually looking at those macro tests and that's what the scientific approach that we're proposing is to actually look at marketing on a holistic level and implement a series an ongoing series of macro tests that allow us to understand the media levers and apply the media theories but refine them for a particular business product and brand um, so that a marketer can actually understand how that theory applies to their specific parameters because it is just general theory that we're all working from without actually putting these tests in place. You can't actually quantify how that theory might actually impact your business outcomes. And just 20, again, probably what circa 20% of, of, of companies that you see are, are doing this or is it a bit higher in this instance? Probably a bit less because I actually think it's the type of business that has an appetite um, for this and I think it's probably more challenger brands or businesses that, are, businesses that are in a growth phase rather than mature businesses where it's easier to implement these macro tests because they are risk averse. They're looking for or generally can be risk averse. They need to make sure that every dollar spent is actually going to drive the outcome for them. And so it's actually a really sensible way to approach scaling up their marketing efforts if they're coming from very low funnel digital tactics that are delivering efficiencies and growth for them historically to move into that space where they're in broader mass marketing that takes a lot of investment but it also takes a bit of risk to actually have the appetite to invest in that so macro tests like this are easier to implement with those businesses because it's a step-by-step approach to actually prove that each of these incremental efforts is actually driving incremental gains for the business whereas for a mature business to implement tests like this, which could be being dark in a market for a period of time to actually get a control to compare to, it's actually taking a step back from when they've got a, already got a significant national presence. There's a risk there for them to actually implement these tests because they could then lose traction in a geography that's quite critical to them. Uh, that all sounds fairly sort of reasonable for, for not to do these things, Nicole, but you like a bit of science, right? You, you, you've done a bit of this. It's helpful on a number, number of levels because, I mean, over the years uh, you do get a really good gut feel, but you want to check that. You want to sense check that all the time. So this is the way to do that and to, and to add, I suppose, to making your gut feel not a gut feel anymore, but actually um, something that's verified by data, which um, is is really helpful, especially when you're making really big decisions and, and potentially taking big risks. Um, we started advertising uh, a lot more uh, recently and we, we did test into it and it was really helpful. Um, I, I was convinced it was the right thing to do before we did the tests, but... It just it just verifies your opinion. So um, if you're resistant to this because you think you know, it doesn't matter because 
other people don't know. So it really helps with stakeholder engagement like we talked to before, but it, but it actually gives you confidence in your own thinking. When you've been in, in, in organisations beyond WW now, uh, is it, you know, when Claire and James talk about all of these themes being sort of in the minority uh, of what is used by marketers, the, the scientific approach of hypothesis test measure and so forth, previous organisations to this, Nicole, were they set up for that or did you try and, did you have to try and build that? Trying to get a sense of how common um, this this the lack is. Yeah, like Claire said, um, it's it's hard for me to say because I've been in a lot of digital native companies and it's very very common. Like it's almost too common. <laughs> like it's sometimes they take it too far, right? Especially in a small market where you can't get statistical significance. Um, and it's of course coming out of the US where you can get statistical significance in a day. Yeah. Uh, so it's, but the the what Claire was saying about with a, a large company, and I have worked for a couple of large um, companies. That's when they the risk is too great to actually turn things off um, because they could lose share of voice, and they've got every lever pulled to a hundred. If they turn anything off at that point, they do. Um, they fear they will lose sales or or lose share of market, and so they can't actually ever find out exactly which channel is doing what mm. and at what level they need to be. So that I I I kind of feel sorry. I I haven't worked out yet how if I was in you know the position of leading the marketing team or the media in those organisations, what I would do. Um, I I probably couldn't help but take a low risk um, segment and test in it because I I just would need to I would need to you know hone hone the media mix and hone the whole system. So the fear the fear of, of sort of losing some business means a lot of companies are happy to trade off and fly blind. Really, is what you what you both of you saying? That's correct. Yeah, and they've got usually these companies have the money to do it right. So you only you find that the testing is kind of on this. In this relationship, the level of testing is in a relationship with the company's efficiency needs. Like if you have to be a hyper-efficient company and you are that's your business model or you're a startup, then that's where these tests really come into the fore. If you've got so much money you don't know what to do with it, a good place to spend it is in media. Yes, that's a great point. John, um, uh, hypotheses, test, measure, you're a big fan, right? You, yeah. You're there. I mean, it's almost like you need to build a data-first culture. And then, and then all of these things sort of emanate from it. But using Amazon example, they, they actually embed uh, analysts into most of the teams. They call them truth seekers. And you're not allowed to propose anything without, without some kind of experiment and data validation. Otherwise, forget it. Not even going to make, make it past the sort of the first gate. So, so now what I will say is you take that too far, data starts get weaponized and start getting used as propaganda. So you, you need governance sort of layers over the top. If, if, if I was to give you my simplistic way of how you sort of build to this. The first thing you need to do is build a trading culture. So that's that's measuring that's measuring and, and, anal- and sort of having all your channels and f- at a fingertip. So you know everything that's going on, every funnel that you have. And that should be fairly simple for most businesses to get to. I think then you start, you know, that allows you to watch patterns, allows you to start sort of getting a sense of the data. Then I think you move into that sort of experimentation th- framework that, that James and Claire are suggesting. And, you, you know, there are market tests, there is A-B testing, you know, there's market pairing. There are loads of ways. I, I don't propose any of them are necessarily better than the other, and I always recommend triangulate. So, tr- you know, run a few different tests and try and triangulate the answer. Um, I think rather than try and, try and believe the first answer that comes across your desk. 
because it may very well, you know, the inputs may very well, very well be wrong. So I think that, you know, I think if you're able to get to that sort of data, data sort of first culture, I think a lot of this then becomes second nature. What one interesting uh, allegory here is is the product teams. So for product teams, interestingly, certainly in an online business, this is this is ingrained in the way they work. They document everything. They're very methodical, and they test. You know, every time they roll a new feature out, they test it. You know, through, whether it's you know an A B multivariate whatever, they test it. And so it's interestingly, and I think perhaps, and, and again, I I share working for U.S. companies and online only businesses with Nicole, and I think that behavior is actually I think traversed into the marketing area functions, particularly in the, the businesses with, the, with, that, with those sort of characteristics. Yes, I was going to ask, have you seen, have you had any exposure to companies uh, like uh, Claire and James talk about where there is a, a gap and, a, and a, a, a reluctance to test? I worked, I worked at um, Telstra for a while for my sins, and that, and that was a, an opinion and politically led decision-making framework. Yeah, right. I'd love to delve deep into that, but I don't think we should yet. Anyway, <laughs> oh, the, the, scar, the, the scars are still raw. <laughs> yeah, yes, right. Um, so, listen. Uh, theme three um, in in the book is uh, statistics and modelling, which of, of course is sort of a bit of an extension to the scientific approach we've just talked about in theme two. Uh, in that, James, um, you, you you argue that modelling and statistics are, are essentially largely absent and sub- subjectivity. Reigns, which again is another surprising to me. Like the, the, this, 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 this whole notion that some of this stuff is not even operating in the market now just shows how much how much we've got to catch up. Uh, your your thoughts on the on the modelling uh, approach or the modelling theme, uh, James? Yeah, so we're primarily advocating for the the two models, econ- econ- economic trick models, hard to say, but econometric models and media mix models. And these have typically been the preserve of externally bought in consultancy. So we're, we're saying to marketers, bring these in-house, those skills. John talked about SQL skills coming in-house. Um, but more, more and more, we're seeing the Python and R coding speak, the, the geeky coding that can do models being brought in. And it, it's well within the um, possibilities that the young kids coming from grads have experience in these languages and come and add a lot of immediate value in marketing departments. Um, getting the data together, running Python or R code across it and coming up with really good insights that are proper scientifically led. And you're saying that you can build essentially what? You can build your own econometrics, uh, econometric models internally without needing the big consultants to do it? Yeah, so um, data scientist is the fastest trending um, university course globally uh, and in Australia. So there's lots of opportunity to get internships and grads that come ready with those skills, um, but the business has to come to the table with the data. And that's typically the harder bit, accessing that data into one place and allowing that the code to run. Claire, typically, you know, at least econometric modelling, market mix, well, both of them really are, have been historically quite expensive, which has been a preventative, um, sort of preventative uh, sort of block to do this stuff. But... Um, is there challenges beyond that, beyond the cost? Yeah, I think some challenges we see and we're implementing modelling with as many of our clients as we can get to be willing to go on that journey with us. But we've had conversations with some of them where they're so bought into the flawed digital measurement methodologies and that's what, if the business pays attention to what marketing is driving, that's what the numbers they use to take back to the business. And so to shift from that to a holistic view of, media and marketing performance with modelling that actually takes into account the full effect 
as much as possible of marketing and media efforts, it's quite a different conversation to be having. And it's quite uncomfortable for marketers to go, everything we've been talking about for the last five, 10 years as, hasn't been the true picture. And we're going to completely throw that out and change it. And that's not completely throwing out the digital reporting that has its value, but we really need to look at the holistic approach. And I think that's a big barrier to businesses or to marketing teams where they don't have that level of influence and comfort to be able to say to the business, we're actually getting better at what we're reporting and how we're reporting it. And we now have a better view of what marketing is contributing to the business outcomes. And they often um, tend to stick to what they know and what the business is comfortable with rather than what's best for the business and generating growth. Well, uh, Pandora's box when you talk about flawed digital metrics, of course, which gets me into my favourite interesting zone. But when you talk about flawed metrics, what are you, you give us a, a sense of what you're talking about there of how it can narrow or, or misguide uh, insight. So I think there's so many elements of it that can be viewed as flawed, but one of the biggest things that marketing mix modelling or econometric modelling would give us visibility of that digital measurement doesn't is the full effect of every channel on that business outcome. If you're just looking at digital reporting, there could actually be a significant influence of other channels outside of that digital ecosystem, such as TV in driving that end outcome. But because that system doesn't have visibility of all of those channels and the activities outside of the digital ecosystem, it's misattributing all of that effect to the digital channels that are being measured. I think that's the biggest flaw, but there are so many micro things we could get into within that. Yeah, that's 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 the next book, I hope, because I would love to get into that. Um, Nicole, flawed digital metrics, are you... Uh, in that, in on that, or do you think they're okay? No, they're they're not okay. I'm with Claire. Um, I I remember when I joined um, a company a few a few years back, they were only running search, and it was a growth business. and uh, And I was just like, um, I know search has got a really good cost per acquisition, but uh, if you don't run something else, nothing's going to happen. <laughs> like it'll just sit there. Um, and they didn't know, they didn't understand. They just thought it was a hyper-efficient tool, um, media channel. It, it, it spat out a really good metric. So I think when you, when you sort of look at how these things come to life in, in, well, how these flawed metrics make people who don't understand make really bad decisions for business and, that's when you know whole businesses start to decline as a result. Did you manage to turn them on on the on, on that particular narrow one focus? Did you get it broadened? I did. It took about six months, but we were in we we'd done an integrated we did a massive integrated campaign and and I actually uh, turned a decline into a massive growth um, arc after that. So it was very very satisfying to to see it all come through in the data after the fact as well. Yeah, you got a proof case for that then, don't you? Econometrics, so what do you make of, you know, as I said earlier, sometimes econometric modelling is seen as very expensive and old. You get a you get a big consulting firm in maybe or someone, a specialist that might have been done two or three years ago and that's the benchmark that's used uh, forever. Um, are you doing econometrics now? Are you, are you heeding these authors, these great authors' advice, Nicole? Yeah, we're doing, we're doing a version of it where Atomic have actually helped us to layer in our promotions and uh, our our spend and our results all together in a bit of a mixing pot and started to 
pull things apart for us in a much more holistic way, uh, which has been fantastic. But I have, I mean, I have had econometric modelling done in the past on a digital business and in the traditional way and they, they really got upset because we were always on. So they couldn't see the breaks. They were used to... They were used to measuring campaign impact, um, where where companies in in the old days used to just have run a campaign, turn it off, run another campaign, and then they could they were able to find those baselines. But we're we're always on it at, at quite a high level, and so you you don't have that luxury, and so you have to find a model that takes in all the inputs and can pull them apart while they're all on, like not without these massive breaks in the in what's going on. What has what has the work so far shown uh, in terms of breaking breaking up what you're doing? What is any insights you can share there, Nicole, on on the on the work so far? I, I mean, I know there's a lot of digital zealots out there, but TV in Australia still works its socks off, and I think that's shown in the fact that its avails are, are always really low still. So it obviously works for a lot of advertisers too, not just the companies that I've worked for. So I've um, it took there was a little bit of a, a period where digital only companies struggled with that concept and, and they did try very hard to avoid you know it's expensive and it's it's complex and you have to do a TV shoot and all the all that goes with it. Um, so there is some resistance to it and you, it can't be as fast. It takes longer to get live. So I think once um, the results started to demonstrate that it was very much worthy of being in the media mix, um, even for digital and online companies, um, that time where you know people were avoiding it has passed, which is fantastic because it is um, a massive growth driver. John, uh, econometrics, market mix modelling, media mix modelling, uh, and again, I guess you're probably a big fan of it, but um, what's your experience in, in various companies? Look, I mean, I, I think the reason that, that, that sort of click-based attribution systems are so popular is they fill the vacuum. So in some ways, marketing is responsible for the growth of, of, of that method. It's all. It's also deterministic. I've got to stop you there, John. I've got to ask about this. is This is where I go. Okay, last click attribution, last touch attribution. Yeah. That has got to be one of the biggest fallacies the industry has come up with since uh, 1847. Surely, absolutely. How do we get there? Because there was a vacuum. Because marketers. Because marketers hadn't hadn't actually built true measurement models. weren't thinking about it through thoroughly. weren't thinking about incrementality interactive effects and all the other sort of variables. It's also simple in a sense. It's deterministic, right? There's, there's, it's basically an absolute binary outcome. And, and, and businesses like that, finance like that, they like to know if I, if I spend this, I'll get this back. So, so it's simple in its nature and, poor, and generally poor in its application. It's not, it's not the truth. It's an index. You know, it gives you something to sort of benchmark, but it's not the truth. It's not an answer. Media mixed models, by, on the other hand, are difficult to understand because they're probabilistic. You know, they take in, you're not, you're never going to get an exact answer. You're going to get somewhere, you get somewhere in the vicinity of where you need to go, but you're not going to get a, re, a real answer. The other, the other thing I think that's held media mix models back is they're typically, typically historically looking. So you get one built, as you said, you leave it on for three, and you and you, you reference that for the next twelve months. In order for in order for media mix models to be truly useful, they need to be in real time. You need to be able to optimize in much the same way you do with last click. With, with click-based attribution systems, now with with AI modeling and 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 you know cloud clouding and all that sort of stuff, this is now becoming a possibility, where you're able to take all that information and actually produce real time or you know with a, with a reasonable lag, so you can make business decisions and optimize. 
So I think, you know, we are reaching this point, this juncture where, you know, I, I believe the quicker we lose, pure, pure, you know, marketing through the lens of purely an attribution system, the better. And, and, and we have to now accept that we're moving into a world where we're not going to get definitive answers. You know, we're going to get these sort of deterministic answers, that we, we, that, but they're going to be better. They're going to be more thorough. They're going to look after all. They're going to sort of account for all of the media and all the variables. I mean, you know, what about price? I mean, I've tested price. I've tested price in a last click model, and you know, it, it went great. <laughs> You're funny. So, so I think you know, you know what I mean. So like, it's like the, you, you, you know, the real world is not is not is not a set of binary inputs and outputs. That's been the challenge, I think, of getting this adoption. How are you dabbling uh, in econometrics now? I mean, uh, Nicole talked about doing some work with Atomic on this stuff. Um, are you doing likewise? Yeah, and, and what's it showing? I mean, it, it is show, you've got it. You've got to operate through the funnel, and 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 you know, you've got to op- and like search isn't. I can tell you one thing: search isn't incremental as as Google will want you to think it is. And there's a reason why Google Google don't let you do incrementality tests. You know, from from all, from my from a few. Uh, Tests I've done, it's two thirds is incremental, if not worse. So, 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 so that you learn a little bit about your, your bottom of the funnel, and the fact it's not it's not as efficient as perhaps perhaps your click based attributions tell you. And it also you also learn you've got to you've got to go up the funnel. You've got to talk to a broader audience in order to grow. And again, click click based systems sort of force almost to focus on the bottom of the funnel and you circle around the same customers. Do you share that view, Nicole? Absolutely. I think the the thing that I would say, if you can't afford to sort of get a media mix model or you don't have an agency that can support you in this, one thing that I have done um, from from a lot of testing and to Jonathan Jonathan's point, it's a little bit, it's a bit old, but it enables you to put an assumption in place that lets you do that real-time optimization, which is just I, at the moment for the businesses I've been in, 50% of brand search um, plus 50% of organic search, uh, I always attribute to broadcast channels. And look, there's word of mouth in there. There's a whole bunch of other stuff we don't even know what is causing those search searches to go up. But by just t- taking an assumption on the on that search traffic and search signups, you can then you can include broadcasts into your real time optimization that you can do on digital in you know in from software. But that's the way that you can actually start to really start trading the full media mix, not just the digital media mix. They're not perfect. Models aren't perfect by any means. Um, but it's very important to get to grips with a econometric model because it's often the external factors to a business that have a lot of influence on sales. So when we do run models, we often see competitor spend having a decent impact on a client's sales, positive and negative in many cases. Um, competitor spend can stimulate sales in the category. Um, but COVID has been a massive impact, but largely positive for a lot of our clients. So it's good to be able to discern those elements and not not ride on the coattails off them or not hide behind them because uh, as a media agency, we all have sales going up and claiming it all for ourselves. But when a business has a model, there's a science and a rigor that will break that down and go, no, media did its thing, but competitor spend did, did its thing and COVID had these sorts of impacts. So understanding that fully macro model uh, and making steps towards it, they are quite complex things, but making steps so that you start to benchmark 
the percentage of impact that media has. I just I just want to be clear though, James, when, when you talk about doing this econometric modelling and, and bringing it in-house and having uh, analysts and data analysts and so forth doing that, are you literally building these econometrics inside Atomic from the ground up or have you have you got some 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 templates and models that you bring in from exter- from outside because you know as I said earlier there's a lot of there's some companies making some good coin out of just being a specialist including some of the big consulting firms being specialist econometric uh, modelers so you're, you're building from the ground up on 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 on, on all this so reasonably straightforward models um, take all media in, media spends by day most commonly, sales by day, uh, and then external variables like competitor spend, competitor offers. The weather, there's my easy contribution because that's all I've got. Yeah, when it's ice cream, weather has a big impact. Yes. Um, but we do brainstorm with the client what kind of external impacts, influences there are, and then we try to get data on those and model that in. If we can't get the data, we make estimates on those variables. And they're not perfect, and often they'll, they'll say there's a confidence score that isn't isn't strong enough but in the process you've had deep conversations around what's possibly impacting the sales results and we're on a journey we're educating ourselves uh, and we're finding insights regardless ideally we get a strong confidence score or we work towards a confidence score that is predictive and solid and robust does it typically that the outputs you're getting, the findings you're getting, does it typically challenge the assumptions that are being made by client by by brand organisations, or is it is it confirm? I'm a digital native guy, but I am always pleased to see the TV and radio impacts because uh, it challenges my presumptions. Well, you cut your you cut you cut your teeth in search, didn't you, James? Yes. So it's nice to know. That I'm wrong sometimes. Yeah, you're fundamentally challenged by the sounds of Nicole and John. It is about removing the bias. That's the beautiful thing. You can't. You you can challenge the model, but at the same time, it is a, a non-biased output. Mm. You can challenge all the inputs, um, but the underlying science uh, has put people on the moon. I say so. We've got to trust trust in these algorithms. Yeah, and you and, and you remain open, which is probably the baseline for what every marketer should do is stay open. Don't don't be closed to it to, to assumptions, right? That's the point. Um, now we're gonna move a little bit, theme four, objectives. So defining it sounds so simple, defining and outlining media objectives. James and Claire doesn't happen much, maybe? Well I think um, it comes back to the broader conversation we've been having that without the tools in place and the measurement in place to quantify the impact of media, we will get briefed on a business objective, which is great. That's what we should be driving towards. But then we often see that there's an arbitrary, whether it's a percentage or um, some sort of metric to determine what media needs to drive of that end outcome, but it's not actually based on any current science and modelling. So we see examples where a client might be talking about a media mix model that they built once at a point in time five, six years ago with a previous partner and they're still leveraging the one insight they got from that that's media might drive 18% of their business, for example, and we've literally had this brief before. We need to deliver, I'm going to talk broad numbers, 100,000 sales. We've seen historically media drove 18% and so you need to deliver 18% of that 100,000 sales and it's right. actually not grounded in any current insights they don't have modelling in place to measure the impact of the media against that end outcome. So even if we plan towards that 18,000 um, target that they've set arbitrarily, 
there isn't actually the measurement in place to then quantify whether media hit even that 18%. They can only look at the total picture. And so it's really quite irrelevant having that link unless you have the modelling in place to measure directly the impact of media currently. It's an arbitrary objective, really, that it doesn't have any basis in reality. And so what we're encouraging people, once their modelling is in place, to actually gain an understanding of current contribution of media against the bottom line and against those business outcomes. But also then you can start to look at how much media is going to contribute to growth over a set period of time. That could be the next year, it could be the next three years. But you actually start to gain an understanding of what can actually be achieved with media beyond the arbitrary metrics that are applied to it. Arbitrary and arbitrary and antiquated in some cases by the sounds of it. Yeah. So there's some there's some really fascinating sort of observations there from Claire, Nicole. Where do you sit on it? It's tough. I think setting a media budget, um, most people do do it historically. Um, use the results from the past, use what's been happening, uh, especially if you're new to a company or it's not a startup. So it is interesting to sort of start from what you want to achieve, how many people do you need to reach to to achieve a certain sales goal and growth goal and then work backwards. That that's To me, it's so logical. It's kind of crazy that we're not all doing it all the time. What happens, Nicole? I just like it, you know, Claire's examples are extraordinary that, you know, there might be a five-year-old stat that's driving lots and lots of money in the current in the current market or in the current um, deployment or execution or something, how does that happen? I think it's just because it's, you know, have you heard the phrase, that's how it's always been done? done? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's like, that's it. That's all it is. It's just like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And there's so many things that are broken, I think, in a CMO's life. At work life, maybe not their personal life. Could be but both actually, couldn't it? <laughs> so, it's kind of, do we want to add that in? Um, is it fundamental enough? Will it change enough for us to take the time to kind of subvert and also approach a risk of what if what if we find out we have to, we're spending too much? Um, are we confident in this methodology to drop the budget? Uh, and that's, that's a scary prospect. John, um, so, you know, this whole notion of old benchmarks and not capturing uh, and, and, and informing uh, in real time some of the, the current data and the current results that are happening in a business, um, where do you sit on that one? Yeah, it happens. I totally agree. Like there's, a, there's an antiquated way of doing things and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But it's, it's broke. I think we have to recognise that that system is broke. Um, and I think the, the fundamental shift in my mind is going from an input-based methodology, so how much you're going to spend, what kind of impressions you're going to generate, et cetera, to an output-based methodology. So how, what is it going to generate? What is it going to deliver? And in that, as you do that, you go from cost center to profit center, which is another equally important sort of cultural change. It's a real flip of mindset there, though, John, isn't it? It is, but, but is it that, it's not that complex, right? In reality, it's, but, it's, but it is a flip of mindset. I mean, I think marketers may be conditioned over the years that it's a cost center and they sit there and try and protect to protect their budget. They're not thinking about what kind of business outcomes can I generate. The other thing I think in, in respect to how you deal with your media agency is you've got to pump them all your data. You've got to make them business partners. Partners. They've got to know not only all the stuff James mentioned earlier, they've got to know how many new customers you acquired potentially by postcode. You know, they've got to know how much revenue you're generating by postcode if you want to go down that. You know, so you have to, you have, to have this really free transfer of data 
And through that, through that sort of, again, culture or process, it helps you. They, they then become embedded within the, the actual outcomes. In fact, I have a relationship with, with James and Claire that has, they have skin in the game on, on, our, on our business performance. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that all of that is just, when you, when you look at it in the rearview mirror, you go, that's just obvious. But it, does, it doesn't happen. Like I, I know lots of colleagues that are still in, in, in that mindset of protecting their budget not thinking about what outcomes can I deliver. I guess there's a reluctance there to do exactly what you're talking about um, or what, what, what stops it happening. It's, it's a little more difficult, I mean, in, in a sense, so, and, and it, is, it is kind of creating new patterns of behaviour, um, not necessarily in the marketing team but throughout the business. You know, even the, even the process of passing data to media agencies is, is, is not a simple one. There's a lot of people in the business who are like, hey, what are you doing giving them, giving them our customer data? That's the point, right? I hear, I hear lots about how there is a reluctance from, from, from a brand side, from, a, from a, 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 an organization to share data. And so therefore, you, you, you know, it might be protective, but then you might get diluted uh, impact and results as a result. But there is reluctance to share data. I, I'd say it the other way. How can I make them accountable for results if I don't give them all the information required to produce results? Mm. Um, and you've got to you've got to hold your line on that one. That's one. That's one. You, you know, that's one that I, I feel the risk is low. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure what James or Claire could do with you know knowing how many customers I have in a postcode. Mm. But the but the benefits are huge. And and, and again, that's a, that's a cultural change that you need to you need to really work hard on. And that's probably that's actually interestingly with the CTO. So that's you start working with the, with the, with the tech folks, get them comfortable. You know, giving them access to GA, you know, all the all the other data, all the other data systems that you have. Yeah, uh, James, Claire, how do you see that? Do you see that changing with 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 clients across the board? The preparedness to to share, uh, or is there still work to go there? I think we're probably in a fairly good position with that. That our clients are quite comfortable sharing data with us. Um, generally speaking, I think that's probably something that's in the majority where we actually do get data when we request it from them, provided they know what purpose it's going to be used for and they can see, to John's point, the benefit to them. But ultimately, to John's point, it's holding us more accountable. If we have the data and the information to be able to create these models that we've been talking about and actually understand the impact of what we're doing against their business outcomes, we're all being held more accountable. In that previous example I shared, where even though they might think they're briefing us on a media objective, that's going to drive that end business outcome. If they don't have anything in place to then model that and quantify that impact for the campaign that we're currently working on, they're not holding us accountable. As a media agency, they actually don't know whether we hit the target they set for us or not. And so it's really critical. The other thing modeling gives them is insight specifically into what media drives as well as other positive or negative influences on their business outcome. So that could be competitive spend that might have a negative or sometimes positive impact on um, business revenue or business acquisitions, or custom, new customer acquisitions. It could be, to Nicole's point, promotions and offers that are in market at a point in time. So it really isolates the impact of media, which again comes back to holding the media agency accountable to what we can actually influence. It's so powerful. And I think, as I said, clients are definitely willing to share the data provided they understand the benefit to them and what it is actually going to drive for their business. Are you sharing data, Nicole? And can I see it? <laughs> yes, we're sharing a lot of data. Um, the guys are doing modelling for us, so they've got um, quite a bit. But surprisingly, the funny thing is we share so much um, of like our media ecosystem data 
uh, and results. But what I've found recently is that we haven't been sharing sort of the old-fashioned data. So I haven't shared lately with with Atomic, um, you know, our socioeconomic geodemographic data. And so I, I was talking to them only last week about, you know, how do we get that to you? That's crazy that we haven't done it. But it, we're so so um, focused on media optimization uh, that we've kind of forgotten some of the old tools that, that do need to come in. That's a great point. So how, you know, in terms of socio-demographic data, how does that incorporate in and inform everything we're just talking about? So am I on the fly here? It's too, it's too, you're working that out or? What we did recently was we looked at uh, our, our geodemographic data and um, started to, be really targeted with our outdoor campaigns. So, you know, sort of using testing hypotheses about um, people who are joined from certain postcodes and, you know, will do lookalikes, if you like, uh, in outdoor. So that's what we did. And then we'll test, we'll test propensity um, through audience groups in Roy Morgan as well. So we're, we're doing sort of some of the old-fashioned stuff that was around when, you know, digital attribution wasn't or media attribution, I should say, and starting to, to combine them with the more modern methodologies. Well, Claire Fenner, James Dixon, Nicole McInnes, John Wilde, um, that's part one. Uh, we've covered today the uh, United Team, the scientific approach, statistics and modelling, and uh, the broader media objectives. In part two, in episode two of um, the series, we will be covering things like audience, channel mix, reach and frequency. There's one that um, many of you will love uh, and investment and the investment criteria. Uh, So look forward to having Nicole, John, Claire and James back for part two. Stay safe. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.